Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. What's up? And welcome to the show. How are, are you? Doing? I was like, are you about to do ASMR? <laughs> what Hi. are you doing? <laughs> Hello, everyone. I'm drinking a nice can of seltzer. Do you have oh my God. nails tapping can, can we hear the right. bubbles? That's, no, it's it's Trader Joe's seltzer. It's not fuck? very carbonated. It's all right. Anyway, what's yeah. up? How you doing? Uh, not much. Uh, I did a lot of things today. You sure did. Yeah, I That's worked good. out on golf. <laughs> it's a, a good day of, to be you. A lot of strain on the old whoop. Oh, you know, your whoop strap. Yeah, it's like a glorified Fitbit. Yeah, that is. you pay money for. Yep, that's every correct. month. It's a subscription. Good. Yes, I. This is not an ad. It's not a good deal. <laughs> <laughs> We're not sponsored, but I we do could like be. It. Hey, whoop! You want to sponsor us? Uh, I swear to God, I've said this before that if there was an app where it was a random num- number every day and it just changed, I would come back and look at it every day. <laughs> I believe. So that. I just I love opening it up and seeing how much i slept and like my number you are a number bitch huh yeah all right have we noticed yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) but it's fun for me good you know i love that for you Mm -hmm. anyway i don't think we have too much podcast news um hopefully in the next coming weeks i'll have more time to put my energy into the podcast Mm -hmm. fingies crossed on Mm -hmm. what that means (laughs) we'll see um but anyway I guess let's just jump on in you know yeah i'm excited i don't know really anything at all so yeah. this is a complete surprise to me it's nutty it nutty is, okay it is They're pretty different word. it's terrifying actually like, okay. like it's really scary and i actually um i mean everyone listening to this knows what it is because we have titles and descriptions and stuff so it's about a plane and like a bomb and stuff but um plane bomb a plane bomb the worst kind of bomb really but I'm going on a plane tomorrow. And oh, I, this is comfy. No, no, way worse. It gets worse. And I didn't know that. So there's a specific seat that is like mentioned in the story. And it's, oh, it's yours. It's my seat. No. Well, it's kind of my seat. It's not entirely my seat. It's a like, different. It's the same number. It's not the same letter. So it's your row. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's all right. It's all right. We're not going to think about hey, that. Hey, lucky number 37. 26. No, oh, really? You it's got 26. towards the front. That's nice. Towards the, I'm yeah. usually, I'm, I'm in almost always like late 30s, You're early 40s. You're a back 40s. bitch? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I'm that's a middle-aged cool. row person. I don't know. Honestly, it's kind of sick now because they're boarding from the back as of recently. Really? I mean, at, at least Delta does. No, they ain't. They always board those, like, first-class people first. Well, obviously, first-class goes first, but then they, they board from the back to the front. Oh, well, I hope that's what they do for my next flight. Yeah, anyway. It's we're so getting... much more efficient, though, We're getting right? off track. Okay, like, All right, let... enough. No more Can rant. Can we talk about it? No, we cannot talk about what it. What about the spider? Can we talk about the spider? Why would that, you talk about that right now? That, that you, like, literally screamed, uh, and it was so frantic. I was like, this is probably a spider. Yeah, it was fucking but terrifying. If it was anyone else, I'd be like, they've just been stabbed. I have real arachnophobia, okay? It was, and it, it was big. It was big. It was large. It was like the size of a quarter, maybe a half dollar. Maybe bigger. Like, yeah. it was big. And it crawled out of my suitcase as I was packing. I was on the phone with my mom, just having a nice time packing my bag. And it crawled out, and it almost touched my hand, and I wanted to die. So, yeah, that happened today. Anyway... Yeah. This is not the spider podcast. 
jump into the story, okay? Okay, let's get in. <laughs> All right. So, before sunrise, on December 11th, 1994, in Manila, Philippines, at around 3 a.m., 26-year-old Amaldo Fulani was getting an early start. Although, I've already tricked you, because Fulani was not his real name. It was an alias he had chosen for his quote-unquote mission that day. Almaldo Fulani was the name on a fake Italian passport that he'd be presenting at the airport, but his real name was actually Abdul Basit Mohammed Karim, but he is widely known as Ramzi Youssef, so that's what I'm going to be calling him throughout the story, is Ramzi Youssef. And he was an extremely wanted man from Pakistan. Yusuf was born and raised in Kuwait on either May 20th, 1967 or April 27th, 1968. Wikipedia wasn't sure, but when he was 18 years old, Yusuf and his family returned to Pakistan where he married and had two children. And soon after returning home to Pakistan, Yusuf was sent to the United Kingdom for education. In 1986, he enrolled in an institute in Wales where he studied electrical engineering, graduating four years later, and he also studied at Oxford College of Further Education to improve his English. And during his summers between university, you know, he'd come home, he'd kick it, as any (laughs) normal college student would, Um, but instead of using his new engineering knowledge for good, he used it to teach bomb making to militants in training camps, and he was a professional bomb maker and terrorist. So, So this is what you call kicking it? I was joking. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. That day, he was going to be putting his latest invention through an important test and everything needed to go like clockwork in order for it to happen. Yusuf was, like I said, a highly skilled terrorist bomb builder, so there was no room for error. He had created a liquid explosive bomb that he would be able to get through airport security to use to blow up an airplane. I'm sorry, is this why we can't bring water bottles on planes? Shit, it might be, yeah. No way. So he packed the liquid explosive bomb very carefully into his toiletries bag in his carry-on, and he had batteries and wires to connect everything in a slide-out compartment in the sole of his shoe and set off for the airport that morning. He hailed a cab from his apartment downtown, and it took him less than 30 minutes to get there, so he arrived in plenty of time for his 5 a.m. flight with Philippine Airlines. And even though it was 1994, he did have to go through security, because I I mean, I guess there was always airport security, but it just ramped up a ton after 9-11, but he still had to go through security. Yeah, I don't know, maybe in the Philippines, but yeah. from what I hear, my like, mom and dad tell me, like, you could just walk on a plane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know the difference between airport security in the Philippines versus the U.S. and like... Yeah, I know. But like, you know, every country is different. But from what I understood, it was like the U.S. pretty much you could just get on a plane pre-9-11. Yeah, that's kind of... Or maybe it was kind of like it is now to get into a football stadium or something where you just go through a metal detector and that's kind of it. Right. Yeah. Well, he he did have to go through like a metal detector and also had to send his bag through an x-ray screening machine. Oh, okay. So he knew that and he prepared for that, but he put his liquid bomb in a saline solution bottle. So it just looked like it was contact solution. And the wires that were in his heel wouldn't apparently set off the metal detector because it only detects from, like, the ankle up. Really? And he didn't have to take off his shoes or anything. So he had, like, wires and batteries in the soles of his shoes, and he sent the bomb 
through the machine, but it was in a regular old saline bottle. Wow. Yeah. Terrifying. Yeah. Really. So as he went through security, he presented his forged Italian passport and they checked his bag and pulled out the bottle that held the liquid explosives. But since it was in a saline solution bottle, they sent him through and the wires in his shoes didn't set off any alarms. So having successfully gotten the bomb through security, he did board his Philippine Airlines flight 434. And the final destination of the trip was Tokyo. However, he wouldn't make it that far. Um, The trip was supposed to make a stop over in the Philippine resort town of Cebu, which was just about 550 kilometers south of Manila. So that's where he was planning on getting off. Flight 434 was under the command of Captain Ed Reyes, First Officer Jamie Herrera, and Flight Engineer Dexter Comandado. All three of them had flown with Philippine Airlines for many years, and Ed Reyes and Jamie Herrera were also former Air Force pilots. So, highly experienced. Their first leg of the flight was fairly empty. The jumbo jet had 400 seats, but there wasn't nearly 400 passengers, so everyone was kind of scattered all around the airplane, and once the plane hit the cruising altitude of 10,000 feet, they could move around and switch seats if they wanted to. So once he was able to move, Yusuf asked if he could move so that he could have a better view, and he chose seat 26K, which was supposed to be located directly over the center fuel tank in some 747s. So this was very much by design. Maria de la Cruz was the stewardess for that flight, and she gave him some juice and a cookie and continued on her route forward through the passengers. After she passed Yusuf, he needed to find a bathroom to, you know, just assemble a bomb. Real quick. Yeah, kick it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) This would only take a few minutes, but required total concentration. But this wasn't his first rodeo. He had designed it so that these innocent-looking components could be transformed into a lethal bomb. And from the outside, it looked just like a bottle of contact solution, two batteries, a digital wristwatch that he used as a timer, and a couple of wires. But when he put it together, it, it didn't look very innocent. It looked like a bomb. So he put it back into his toiletries bag and walked back to his seat. He set the digital Casio watch to detonate in four hours. And this would give the plane plenty of time to land in Cebu, him to get off, and for the plane to retake off and be in the air on its way to Tokyo before it would explode. Which is horrifying. Yeah, I can't. This is so, like, planned out and just to the detail, like, every detail. To a T, yeah. To a T. Yeah, I mean, we're going to talk about, like, other things that he's done, but he's very sophisticated in his planning, and he's highly skilled and very dangerous. Yeah, and I can't imagine, like, going through school and you're, like, in class with somebody who's like, yeah, I'm going to go get a job with, like, Exxon when I graduate. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to go blow people up. Oh my God. It's so horrifying. But once he got back to his seat, he planted the bomb in the life jacket pocket underneath the seat because he knew that during the inspection of the plane between flights, they weren't very likely to check there. Then once again, he changed seats to a few seats ahead of 26K. So, you know, he wasn't sitting on top of a bomb for the rest of the flight. And Maria de la Cruz. Here's a question. Yes. If it goes off, does it matter where you are on the plane? I mean, you know? probably not. If he's putting it right under the, like, the, the, fuel the, tank. the fuel tank, like, you move a couple rows, dude, not going to make a difference. That's, yeah, in theory, that's true. We'll talk about exactly what happened when it does go off, but... Spoiler. Spo- uh, not really, but it's... <laughs> <laughs> It'll be crazy. 
so he moved to seat 20 or a few seats of, ahead of 26K so that he wasn't right on top of the bomb for the rest of the flight. And Maria de la Cruz, on her second time around the cabin, did notice that Yusuf had changed seats once again. And at this point, she was a little sus, but never in a million years did she think it was because he planted a bomb underneath the first seat that he changed to. Of course, why would she? Right. And after that, the rest of the flight passed by uneventfully. So flight 434 landed in Cebu at 6.50 a.m. Yusuf, the domestic flight crew, and 25 other passengers got off the plane at Cebu, where 256 more passengers and a new cabin crew boarded the plane for the last leg into Tokyo. However, Captain Ed Reyes, First Officer Jamie Herrera, and Flight Engineer Dexter Comandado stayed to finish the flight. Many of the passengers boarding were Japanese businessmen, and among them was 24-year-old Haruki Ikigami, and he was the unlucky person sitting in seat 26K that day. He was looking forward to getting home to Tokyo after his first trip overseas. However, the airport congestion delayed their departure by 38 minutes. So by 8.30 a.m., all passengers were on board flight 434, and by 8.38, they were cleared for takeoff. The flight to Tokyo was going to be about four and a half hours, and after takeoff, everything was going just normally. Many passengers in the cabin were co-workers with a Japanese tour group, so many of them just settled in, were reading magazines, or taking naps, you know, just normal plane behavior. Captain Ed Reyes came over the intercom and told passengers that it was a beautiful day in Tokyo and he expected them to land in Narito Airport in two hours. But very shortly after that, at 11.43 a.m., about an hour and a half from Tokyo, Haruki Ikigami hears a small beeping noise that very quickly turned into a large blast that rocked the entire plane. The blast caused debris to fly everywhere as the cabin filled with smoke, and the passengers also felt as the cabin started to expand from the pressure of the blast. I can't even imagine something yeah. like that happening. Like, that is horrifying. I'm, like, literally out of nowhere. Yeah. Like, you're take, can you imagine taking a nap and waking up to that? No, yes. Like, that's literally what happened. The guy behind 26K was just taking a nap. Like, he was taking a nap, and then he got his legs, like, blown up. I mean, the, yes. I think he, he kept them. Like, they, they, he survived and got treated. But, like, he was very badly injured. Wow. I mean, but so it was just like a liquid bomb. It wasn't like there there was any nails or anything in it. No, but I mean, it was mm. a chemical yeah. reaction. It was a, an explosion that ignited for sure. Like it was very, very bad. Each week I speak to inspirational people. Each one of them has been on their own remarkable journey. They've all chosen to share their stories with one aim, that if people can relate and get comfort from it if it can help someone as one of my guests said there's so much going on in the world we should be focusing on helping one another and making each other better each one is a superhero not because they have special powers it's because in spite of what they've gone through they keep on going i find them remarkable please listen to chatholic and hear their stories Yeah, like, how big was it, though? Did it, like, depressurize the cabin? No, Did it, so, like, absolutely, like, what the word is, like, disappear? The poor guy was sitting on top of it? No. I'll get into exactly what it did do, but no, it did not. It could have been way worse. 
So thankfully, question mark, it was the way it was, even though it, yeah. I mean, obviously, no, there should never be a bomb on a plane. Like, yeah. we know this. Typically, but not great. Um, because of the way it was, it wasn't as bad as it could have been, which gotcha. is good. Okay. okay, so let's get into it. The cabin crew did their best to tell passengers to stay in their seats, which you? <laughs> is just like, what? Like, I guess what else do you do? But all of them were just trying to get as far away as possible from where the explosion initially happened. But I mean, you're on an airplane, so it's not like you can really go far. Yeah. And everyone was just trying to figure out what had just happened. So it's absolute chaos and there's smoke in the air and it's, you know, cloudy and it's screaming and people are bleeding. It's just, it's horrifying. Like I said, the man sitting in row 27 directly behind the bomb had burns completely up his legs. So he was pulled by a flight attendant away from the bomb and was trying to be treated for that. They were wrapping his legs with gauze and whatever they had. And steward Fernando Bayot moved this man away from the blast site and then turned around to see Haruki Ikigami, who had completely sunken into a hole in the floor of the cabin where his seat used to be. Bayot tried to pull him out, but soon realized that most of Ikigami's body below the waist was either damaged or missing entirely. Oh my god. In order to prevent additional panic, Bayot called another flight attendant over to give the appearance that they were tending to Ikigami's needs with a blanket and an oxygen, oxygen mask, and then reported the extent of the passenger's injuries to the cockpit. So Haruki Ikigami unfortunately did pass away. However, he was the only casualty from the explosion. There was 10 people that were like injured and one other person who was really critically injured, but he was the only person that did die. When the blast initially happened, Ed Reyes's first thought was, God forgive me, I think I'm going to die now. And you never want your pilot thinking that. Yeah, definitely not. But after he had that moment, he just did what had to be done. Yeah, I was like, he's a former Air Force pilot, right? Yeah. If anyone, this guy. Oh, yeah. He's yeah. he's pretty I think anyone amazing. would have had that thought. Also, like, what was his name? Haruki Kagami. Haruki just for the first time went overseas, like yeah. his first time out of the country. Mm -hmm. God, I can't it's imagine really anyone sad. in his family like ever flying again, like outside of Japan. I can't imagine anyone on that airplane ever flying again. Yeah. Anyway, once Captain Reyes was updated on the situation in the cabin, he had Dexter Comandado go inspect the damage because if the skin of the plane had been damaged or could potentially break, they would lose pressure in the cabin, which would literally suck people out of the plane and potentially kill everyone on board. So that was a huge concern. Wait, doesn't the cabin depressurize? That's why they have the masks? Yeah, but like, let's say the, the bomb blew a hole in the uh -oh. plane, you would get sucked out. Fuck. Yeah. Thankfully, the plane at this point was in autopilot. And after the blast, the autopilot did correct itself. So the plane was still flying straight but they still needed to know what kind of damage they were dealing with. And when Dexter got back, he told the captain that he believed the pressurization system would hold since they, there weren't any tears in the aircraft's skin, which was huge. But now they realized that after the blast, the steering system was a victim of the blast as well. And although they were still flying in autopilot, they couldn't turn. The blast had damaged the plane's ailerons, which makes it turn, and the elevators, which is used for climbing and descending, and the rudders. So pretty much... Can only go straight. Yeah, they can literally only fly straight right now. They can't go up, they can't go down, they can't turn. Are you joking? No. What? Yeah. 
but they can't turn by like literally just like turning the plane no like dipping the wings jesus yeah they're they're steering i'm assuming they're not pointed at an at an airport (laughs) i they were pointed toward tokyo but at this point they still had at least another hour and a half to two hours until tokyo so they needed to make an, an emergency landing and they were they needed to turn for that you know yeah and also to land in general you have to descend so that too it's an issue Okay, so Tokyo was two and a half hours away, like I just said, and in the cabin, some of the passengers needed urgent medical attention. So Reyes decided to attempt to land the aircraft in Naha Airport on the island of Okinawa, which was 74 kilometers to the west of them, which meant he had to go left. They would turn. <laughs> or, yes, left? West? I don't know. You tell me. I don't know where the yeah, point is. Let's say, let's say left. West. I thought you said west. West? I thought you said west. Anyway... They made mayday calls to Naha Airport, and at first, the people that were receiving the calls couldn't understand what the air crew was saying to them. And they were trying to tell them that they needed to emergency land due to an explosion and there had been casualties, but the other person on the line just kept saying, repeat, repeat, so they couldn't hear them. Mm. Finally, after multiple attempts, an American air, uh, air traffic controller tells them that they are cleared to emergency land at Naha. So they get over the loudspeaker and tell passengers that they will make an emergency landing at Naha Airport in 20 minutes. But landing in Naha is easier said than done because they still can't turn, but they're trying. So (laughs) there's that. Reyes needed to find a way to steer, but he was scared that if he disengaged the autopilot, he would completely lose control of the plane. But at this point, it was his only option. Yeah, it was like this or straight line the whole way. Yeah, so he counts down from three, three, two, one, holds his breath, and flips the switch to turn off the autopilot. And thankfully, nothing happened. Yeah, that's good. That's That's great. But still, the steering is jammed. So he has Dexter check the QRH, which is the quick reference handbook, which is considered the pilot's Bible because if something goes wrong, it's like their lifeline. And for jammed flight controls, it told them to use maximum force possible, including both pilots if required. Oh, so just try harder. (laughs) Just yank it. Yeah. Reyes tried to use as much force as possible, but that wasn't working either. So at this point, he re-engages autopilot to try to figure out something else, which is not in the QRH. So he has to just use his big old brain. Big brain. And figure something out. And of course, this is taking longer than than, than expected. So the 20 minutes, they told everyone, had now turned into an hour. And people were freaking out. One of the men, or I guess probably even a multiple of them, had even written their wills while they were sitting on the plane because they did not think that they were going to make it off of it alive. Oh. Captain Reyes knew that if he didn't think fast, they would miss their chance at landing at Naha because if they couldn't turn, they would just fly right by it. So he disengaged the autopilot again and increased the power to the engines on the left-hand side and decreased the power to the engines on the right side, which makes the plane very slowly start to turn. He then lowers his speed to make a smaller radius turn, which he's hoping will make him line up with the runway at Naha with the guidance of air traffic control. Wow. Sounds highly complicated. Yeah, this is uh, some really complicated guesswork. Yeah. (laughs) That's happening right now. Jesus Christ. But I guess if anyone can do it, it's Captain Reyes, you know? Yeah. 
Other major functions of the plane were also having trouble responding after the blast as well, and things that they needed to land the plane. So that's not good. Can they get the wheels out? So (laughs) they decided that less weight on the plane will put less strain on the gear, and so they decided to dump around 20,000 pounds of fuel. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. And even with less strain on the equipment, Reyes had no idea of the extent of the damage and doesn't know if the landing gear will hold up. So he tells the cabin crew that they should pretty much prepare for the worst and get ready to evacuate. The cockpit crew is trying to get ready for landing. Wait, wait, wait. What do you mean by evacuate? I mean like once they land, get ready to pull people off the plane? Yeah, yeah. I think when they land, it's like get ready to really get people off the plane quick because we might blow up kind of thing. I was imagining like we're going to throw everyone off this plane with a parachute. Good luck. I don't think they have 400 parachutes. Yeah, I was wondering if it's like a cruise ship where they have to have enough lifeboats or life vests for everyone. They don't. I mean, they have life vests, but they don't have 400 parachutes. parachutes, No. Yeah, but they would probably just crash land into the ocean, you know, like, or True. something like that. So they might need to evacuate, quote unquote, people into the water with their life vests. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it wasn't good. Whatever it meant, it was the worst case scenario. Mm. So the cockpit crew is trying to get ready for landing. But when they put the gears down or they attempt to put the gears down before landing, it should have only taken a few seconds, but it hesitated. And suddenly the three men were terrified that it may have been damaged as well, but thankfully after a couple more seconds, they got the green light indicating that the gears were in fact down. So that's good. And Captain Reyes decided he'd disconnect the autopilot and land manually, which is very difficult, I'm, I'm told. They had to keep track of their descent rate, their altitude, and their speed all at the same time, and the three of them literally had to pull back with all of their strength at the same time on the throttle, which I believe controlled the elevators to make them go up and down, you know, to like descend and land the plane. Yeah. Which is, it's a gigantic plane, so I'm sure it took a lot of strength to do that. And at one point before they touched the ground, Herrera had both feet up on the instrument panel as Captain Reyes screamed to pull harder. And all three of them were literally pulling with all of their might to get the plane on the ground. Dude, how are you feeling if you're a flight attendant or like first class? And you just hear it? You're you're like, like, oh, pull harder! Like, like, okay. Yeah, confidence not. Yeah, I mean, nobody, nobody felt good. Yeah, I mean, they're writing their wills right now. Yeah, exactly. And usually I'm not a fan of people clapping after a flight, but I get it this time. And the passengers clapped once they knew they were on the ground. So they did. So they did a manual landing with three people on one throttle. Yeah, in like a big-ass jumbo jet. They saved the lives of 272 passengers and 20 crew members that day. Wow. Yeah. That's huge. I know. It's insane. I got full body chills when I said that. Yeah, me too. Now that they were in Okinawa, the passengers were taken off the aircraft by emergency services and the plane became instantly a crime scene. At first, the authorities turned their attention to Haruki Ikigami, the man who had been killed in the blast in C-26K, but the forensic pathologist recovered 94 fragments embedded in Ikigami's legs and butt from the explosion, and he had suffered severe internal injuries and and massive blood loss. And as tragic as it was, the effects of the blast could have been way worse, like I said. Because the bomb was situated the way it was, the blast went straight up and pretty much into entirely into the seat and into Ikigami's body. But if it had been sideways, 
it would have blown a hole into the plane, which, like I mentioned earlier, literally could have sucked everyone out of the plane to their death. And although the blast did sever the steel cables in the ceiling that controlled, like, the rudder and the elevator and the ailerons, all that stuff, and they lost a ton of function, which was really bad, it could have been so much worse because C-26K, like I said, was supposed to be over the center fuel tank, and in this specific 747, it wasn't over the center fuel tank. It was about two seats ahead of the center fuel tank. So, whoa. Yeah. So, literally, probably the seat he moved to after planting it? Uh, very no, close like to it. two seats behind 26K oh, probably okay. would have been over the center fuel tank. Wow. And if that was over the center fuel tank, the entire plane could have just completely exploded, which I think that's what he was intending when he put the bomb there in that probably. specific seat. But thankfully, that didn't happen. So, it could have been so much worse. I mean, obviously, it is very tragic what did happen, but it could have been way worse. Yeah. So once they got all the information they could about Hiroki Ikigami, they then focused on collecting evidence out of the plane. And they started by taking out the biggest pieces of evidence they could, like seats and things like that. But then they made their way down to collecting the smallest particles they could find by using a hand vacuum. They weren't able to identify the bomb's detonator. However, they did find bits of wire, plastic, and metal that were parts of the bomb and didn't belong to the plane. And one forensic investigator was able to identify the bomb's timer by putting together a bunch of burnt fragments of plastic. And he identified that it was a modified digital wristwatch and they also found one of the bomb's 9-volt batteries, and they recognized that it was only sold in the Philippines. Wow. So now they knew that their person came from Manila and was probably there. That's a huge narrower yeah. off of, a, like, the battery brand. Yeah. Like Manila battery. Something like that. I mean, wow. it was only sold in the Philippines. So now enter Philippine National Police Deputy Chief Sonny Raisin, who is now on the case, because we're going to the Philippines, baby. Okay. I'm sorry, I can't get over the fact that his name's Raisin. <laughs> yeah. Wait, so he's the head investigator from the Philippines? Yeah. They just, like, sent this, they're like, this is your problem. Well, not that this is your problem, but it's like, this should be something you're looking into. Yeah. <laughs> help figure us. This out. Yeah, figure that out. <laughs> Maybe help us? <laughs> On the night of January 6th, 1995, almost four weeks after the bombing, the Philippine police got a really lucky break. Ramsey Youssef had enlisted the help of his childhood friend, Abdul Hakim Murad, to mass produce his new undetectable bomb. And this was all being built in his apartment in Manila. But while they were mixing chemicals and shit, you know, bomb shit, something went wrong and the entire apartment filled up with chemical smoke and the two of them had to go out into the hallway until it cleared out. And the, you know, smoke coming out of the building got the attention of the doorman. And so he came up to like check it out and saw the two men in the hallway and was like, can I check uh, this out? Can I help you? Yeah, like what the hell is happening here? (laughs) And Yusuf explained that they were just playing with some fireworks in his apartment, but they're all out now. And the windows are open to let the smoke out, so everything is okay. But the doorman isn't buying that bullshit, and he tells Yusuf to open the door. But Yusuf tells him that if we open the door, all the smoke will be let out into the hallway, so we'll just wait outside. And the two men quickly kind of usher themselves outside. But the doorman calls the fire department and and the police to investigate. 
But as they're arriving, Yusuf persuades his friend that he needs to go inside to get Yusuf's laptop with all of the sensitive information on it. But when Murad makes his way up to the apartment, the authorities are already up there and already like pretty much in the apartment and seeing what's in there. And they chase him out of the, out of the building and shoot him as he's trying to get away and arrest him. But in the commotion, Yusuf did manage to slip away into the crowd because he knew he was, he was, he was like, I'm not going to be the one to go up there and get my laptop. Yeah, They're no. not going to get me that easy. But he sacrificed his friend. It's fucked up. He, yeah, he's fucked up. Yeah, I know. You're like, damn, bro code, that's fucked up. Yeah, I know, dude. <laughs> I don't know. Usually criminals have like some kind of code. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I, I guess. But I don't know. This th- is a weird hill for me to die. Yeah, don't but, like, die you know on this hill. <laughs> You know what I mean? No. <laughs> no? Okay, I'll shut up. The police in Manila were already on high alert at the time because there was a planned visit by Pope John Paul II in a few days. And in the apartment, authorities found exactly what they were scared would happen, which was he was planning a hit on the Pope. He was planning a hit on the Pope? <laughs> Not the Yo, Pope. Yo, what did the Pope do to you? What did those passengers on Flight 434 do? I know, but also the Pope, like... Yeah. You know. He's a terrorist. I get it. You want to get into the mind of a terrorist? No, but he's going big with the Pope. Yeah. He's a very holy man. He went really big. What is happening? Yes, he's a terrorist. Why why the Pope? You're like, not the Pope. Blow up the the plane, but not Not the the Pope. Pope. Oh, God. Plane, not the Pope. Come on, you understand. No, I don't. I don't understand. (laughs) Okay. Let's move also, on. how are you gonna blow up the Pope, dude? Like, doesn't he have security? He's yeah. gotta have security. Doesn't the airport have security? Oh, but obviously not good enough. Yeah, well, maybe the Pope's was a little lacking as well. I don't know. Seems like, <laughs> like I, I don't right, buy it. Let's go, go off this, but like, you know, I feel like it'd be pretty hard to get the Pope. <laughs> okay, let's move on because we could go back and forth for a long time on this, <laughs> and I'm gonna cut it there. <laughs> All the right. fucking Pope? Shut up. The Pope. That's enough. (laughs) This was the authorities' first breakthrough in realizing that there was an Al-Qaeda terrorist cell in the Philippines. And they knew they had stumbled onto something huge and immediately informed Interpol, Scotland Yard, and the FBI of their findings. When news hit FBI Special Agent Frank Pellegrino in New York... No. Hey, I'm Frank Pellegrino. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, (laughs) That's just how I... That's the only way I heard his voice. Oh, my God. Hey, it's Frank Pellegrino. <laughs> what are you doing? Guess what he's drinking. A Pellegrino. <laughs> oh, my God. He knew that this very well could be Ramsey Youssef because he had been hunting him for two years at that point. Youssef had been his focus since the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993, and at the time, he was one of the highest profile fugitives, if not the highest profile. There was a first bombing at the World Trade Center? (laughs) Yeah, so in my notes, I put an asterisk. If Alex doesn't know about the first bombing, here's what it is. (laughs) So so I I also... (laughs) (laughs) You preempted this. Yeah, I sure did. There was a truck bomb that was detonated below the the North Towers that was intended to take down both towers. It was intended to be, you know, what 9-11 was and kill tens of thousands of people, but it failed and it killed six people and injured over a thousand. So still horrifying and terrible. A thousand? Damn. I mean, it, it injured a thousand, it killed six. It was, I mean, horrifying, horrifying, terrible. 
However, it was not what it intended to be. And he was responsible for this. And so they, they were very much trying to catch him, but he was, you know, highly skilled and evading capture. But yeah, so that happened in 1993. And I didn't even really know that happened either because I feel like 9-11 kind of outshines the first yeah, attempt. a little bit. A little bit. But anyway, so they were already on his case, but now they're like kind of closing in. They're on his tail. Right. As the Philippine police continued combing through his apartment, they find evidence tying him to the 434 bombing, as we know. And in his apartment, he had multiple of the same type of watch that he used as the timer on the bomb, which was a huge breakthrough for them. They also found his fat stack of forged identification cards with his various fake names. And in each of his pictures, he looks slightly different, but still enough like himself for it to work. Which right. was, like, really interesting to me, like, that, that he thought that hard about. <laughs> I mean, I guess you have to if you're doing crazy shit like this, but, like, yeah. that his picture didn't look exactly like himself, but it was close enough that it wasn't, like, setting off red flags. Yeah, Inter- interesting. Just interesting. I mean, he put in a lot of forethought. Obviously. Yeah. He also had a chemical dictionary I'm that sorry. was... I'm sorry. I'm imagining him, like, picking out the outfit for each picture. <laughs> Spending two hours on each outfit. <laughs> It's like, what did I wear today? No, I wore the striped shirt in that picture. (laughs) God. (laughs) He also had... Horrible. Yeah. He also had a chemical dictionary that was very used. It was extremely highlighted and underlined and marked up. And they found about 100 prints on that that belonged to him. So they knew it was their man. And discovering all this was really disturbing news for everyone responsible for airline passenger safety because he clearly knew what he was doing and he was still out there. But we know they got his friend and accomplice, Abdul Hakim Murad, and after his arrest, they had sent him to the Philippine police headquarters for for interrogation. And after 67 days, they finally got him to tell them how Yusuf planted the bomb. Initially, he didn't break upon questioning until the FBI came in and provided them with quote-unquote additional information or pieces of the puzzle they didn't have, and then he started to talk, which I don't know what that means. I don't know that I want to know what that means, Yeah. but he talked after 67 days. He admitted that Yusuf had a liquid nitroglycerin that he had stabilized and concealed in a bottle of contact lens solution, and he told them about the hidden compartment in his shoe. And Murad's confession confirmed Pellegrino's suspicion that this was exactly the kind of sophisticated plot he'd expect from Yusuf, however, he wasn't expecting this next piece of information. The bombing of PAL 434 was only a test run for a much bigger terrorist plan that would kill thousands of airline passengers. On Ramsey Youssef's laptop, they found files for five individuals using code names that outlined a plan called Bojenka. And these anonymous terrorists were supposed to board two to three planes each and plant one of these bombs on each of those planes. And then after planting the bomb, they'd set the timer, they'd return back home, and they wanted to set the timer to make all of the bombs detonate within about a six hour time period. The bombing of a total of 12 American planes would have meant to kill 4,000 passengers. Wow. If this plan were carried out and even slightly successful, the death rate would have been enormous, which is just horrifying. Put 9-11 to shame, literally. It would have been extremely bad. Yeah, it would have been bigger than 9-11. Yeah, that's really bad. And even more terrifying, this plan was scheduled to be carried out in less than two weeks after the bust of his bomb factory in Manila. 
Frank Pellegrino and the FBI came to the Philippines on this lead, but at this point, he was long gone. So they set their focus back on Pakistan and immediately put out a publicity campaign. Campaign. <laughs> a publicity campaign that promoted a $2 million reward for assistance in arresting Yusuf. And thankfully, this strategy worked. Yusuf's latest recruit for yet another airline bombing blew the whistle on him. And on February 7th, 1995, the day he was scheduled to leave room 16 at the Sukasa Guest House Hotel in Pakistan, the Pakistani SWAT team caught him in his hotel room planting a bomb in a baby doll. They also found Delta and United flight schedules, as well as a bunch of other bomb components hidden in other children's toys. Wow. Just to make it just a sprinkle more terrifying. Yeah, that's... That's so eerie. I know, eerie and just like, I don't know. Chilling. Horrifying. Yeah. How? What What negative word would you like me to pick? Like, it's you, just, it's awful. Better than me. <laughs> the words you're coming with. I'm a thesaurus, baby. You are. <laughs> Okay, but within hours of his capture, he was extradited from Pakistan. Wait, sorry. So were they, like, expecting to bring children on the plane with these and plant them using children? Or was a 40-year-old, 30-year-old man going to come on the plane with a children's toy? You know, I didn't think that far. My brain wouldn't let me. I really hope it was just supposed to be some weird men carrying some children's toys. Let's go with that. Thankfully, it didn't happen. That's good. That's good. It's positive development. Yeah. So within hours of his capture, he was extradited from Pakistan to the U.S. And with cooperation from the Japanese and Philippine government, the FBI arranged for Yusuf to stand trial in New York City for the PAL 434 bombing and the 1993 attack on the World Trade Center. His trial was held a year later in New York's Southern District Court. And Yusuf decided he wanted to take care of his own defense because narcissism. Even though the judge was like, you shouldn't do that, but he did, which is fine, because he's still going to go to prison anyway. And actually, Captain Reyes testified on behalf of the United States against Al-Qaeda master bomber Ramzi Youssef. So thank you again, Captain Reyes. And Reyes was, not Reyes, hello, Ramzi Youssef was found guilty on all charges against him, including conspiring to bomb 12 American passenger planes. And he was also found guilty for the World Trade Center bombing in a second trial and was sentenced to 240 years in prison. The judge recommended solitary confinement for life in the most secure prison in the U.S. located in Florence, Colorado. And this prison holds the most dangerous offenders and Yusuf is there and spends 23 hours a day locked in a cell by himself. In the year following PAL-434, the Federal Aviation Administration certified a machine to detect explosives, and not one American carrier bought it. It was only until 9-11 that a law was passed that required U.S. airports to have explosive detection systems. Isn't that crazy? Wait, so they just didn't want to pay for it? Yeah, they're like, nah, we're good. Right. And even, even still... I think there are still things that are, are still like machines that detect things better. They're like more advanced, but they take too long. So even now we could have probably better things, but we have what we have. Yeah, there's just no profit motive. Yeah, Ugh, but God, that's a little sucks. that's a little nutty that they that it, it took 9/11 for them to be like, yeah, this is important. Well, it took 9/11 and a law being passed right. and a law. So You're it's right. like not really 9/11, like indirectly, but. God damn. But anyway, pour one out for Captain Eduardo Reyes and his crew, 
because one out right now. they are the real heroes in the story, and Ed Reyes received a tribute from the U.S. government for his courage and action that day, and Captain Ed Reyes put down his wings in 2002 and passed away from prostate cancer in 2007. But that is the story of PAL-434 bombing. Wow. And the capture of Ramzi Yusuf. Yeah, that's... Fuck uh, that guy. Yeah, fuck that guy. I don't know. There's just so many parts of the story. Like, he... I'm curious. Like, did Al-Qaeda send him to school to do this? Or was he, like... No, so actually, Al-Qaeda said that he wasn't affiliated with them or something because they somehow were they were trying to figure out if he was in cahoots with osama bin laden and it came out that he had never met osama bin laden he like didn't know osama bin laden however ramsey yusuf's uncle was i think a key player in 9-11 and also was you know affiliated with al-qaeda and osama bin laden so i think he was indirectly related to al-qaeda but i don't know that he was directly in that terrorist group yeah no i just wondered if like al-qaeda gave him a scholarship no to they go didn't study no i mean like, i mean that wouldn't be too far off though i feel like that wouldn't that's a lot i mean four years and then he like did extra to improve his english mm-hmm. and i don't know maybe he did a master's like, and that's taught a, f- a bunch of people along the way how to make bombs yeah, that's a lot of planning. And, like, it's not only electrical engineering. Like, he needed to know chemical engineering and, like, how the airport security worked and, like, plane design. And Yeah. Jesus. I mean, like, so much of your life just for killing people. It's horrifying. Yeah. But, I mean, incredible bravery by the plane crew and Captain yeah. Ed Reyes and Jamie Herrera and Dexter Comandato, like, in- incredible work yeah absolutely i was gonna say yeah the the whoever the flight attendants were mm-hmm. like flight crew that attended to oh my god that passenger who got burned they're like wrapping him with gauze like they're yeah. heroes too flight attendants in general then, like are oh my god they deal with too much shit they deserve i uh, like so literally much. like any anything customer service it's it's too I much i feel like but, amplify like, they, that by 10 yeah also <laughs> go do it in a metal tube in like, the air like <laughs> yeah fleeting through the air and then also they have to know and have the training of what to do when yeah. shit goes sideways like exactly. this literally sideways so yeah yeah yeah, well, can't go sideways after that, right? Yeah. Anyway, I realized I didn't tell you my and sources. They had to, uh, sorry to cut you off, oh, but okay. like at that time, they had to do it all in those stupid uniforms. Yeah. At least the Delta. I mean, they, I think they still do the uniforms, no? Yeah. They're a little over the top. They should look, you know, a little more comfy would be nice. <laughs> I think they're still, like, I've seen flight attendants still wear, like, tights. I'm like, mm-hmm. this is not, this is 2020. Yeah. Like, we could wear This is jeans. 2021. 2021. We could wear jeans or something. <laughs> Almost 2022. I don't know. I don't really care. Yeah. Yeah, I would want my flight attendants to be more comfortable, you know. Make flight attendants no... more comfortable 2022. Yeah, vote for me. Jesus. Campaign. <laughs> anyway, my sources for this story was a documentary on the Wonder Channel on YouTube. It was the impossible landing after bomb explodes inside Philippine Airline Flight 434 and a bunch of Wikipedia pages on, you know, all the things. Sure. Anyway, a very that was a literal story. title. I yeah, wonder. exactly. I think that's why I left it for the end because I was like, I mean, we know what it's about, but also we can just say it. You're right. You could have just said from wonder, yeah. I guess. That's all right. What, what's your good thing? My good thing is that it's Thanksgiving week, baby. Hell and, yeah. And uh, I'm going to eat good. Uh, I actually don't know what, what's for dinner this year because I'm going to a different fam- part of the family's house for Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. but I'm excited to eat and see them. Hell yeah. Boom. Thankful Food for that. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, what are you thankful for this episode, Stephanie? I 
was going to try to be different than you because I, you know, Thanksgiving is Thanksgiving. And I said that I was going home last week, but I'm very excited for, for stuffing. I haven't had my grandma's Thanksgiving Oof. food in, in a couple years now. And I'm, oh, baby, I'm yep. excited. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to say my good thing is the new season of Dexter because we watched the first two episodes and I love Dexter. I yep. was like a really like weird teenager who had a very big poster of Dexter's face that had power saw to the people written on it. So sure, I love Dexter and also uh, the new season's pretty good so far, even though there's only two episodes out as of right now. But uh, yeah, anyway, that's my good thing. I know it gives, this show gives me anxiety because he's always like murdering people as, right. as one does in right. the show and then trying to cover it up. Yeah, and, that's like, the whole he thing. He just covers it up so nonchalantly, but I guess it's, you know, it's his thing. It's well, what he does. He's out of practice right now. He's out of practice and it just... I don't know why, but it just makes me so anxious. I'm like, literally, <laughs> Do your better. life is depending Do on better. this. Like, move. Like, don't. He's like strolling around. Like, move. Like, you gotta get out. Yeah. Like, it's a good season, though. It is a good season. Anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving and eat all the good food. If you'd like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nottoday underscore podcast. If you or anyone you know has a story that you'd like to share with us and potentially hear on a future listeners episode, send it to nottodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is nottodaypodcast. We have a Twitter that is nottodaypodcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three. Because that makes sense. Because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah.